Amen. Hey, thank you, Kevin. Well, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. It's an honor to be with you this morning and um, to have those of you joining us online, joining us online. Um, it's great to see you guys uh, here. Well, if you can indulge me for a minute, some of you know that I have an interest, um, that I coach basketball on the side, quote unquote. And one of my interests is basketball. I'm a Philadelphia 76ers fan, kind of. And uh, yeah, I, I see that hand back there, that one other one who's brave enough to say that. And I'm just going to, if you can indulge me for a minute on this one. For those of you who aren't sports fans, you have, I, I, I get it, I, kind of. But anyway, I get it. Listen, there's a guy who plays basketball for Philadelphia 76ers at a professional level who, believe it or not, actually can't shoot a basketball. It's hard to believe. And here's what happened this season. They, this is going to be our year, right? We were going to go all the way. This is going to be it. And this year in the playoffs, they got to game seven of a seven-game series. And on the final game seven, this guy, Ben Simmons, great player, all-star, but he got in his head badly. He started missing free throw after free throw after free throw after free throw after free throw, and all the expectations of the offseason came building onto the limelight of this final game seven. And Simmons not only had the outside pressure of everybody expecting him to come through, but then he began to have this inside problem in his own head later on after they lost the series, and many are pointing at his offensive inability as a part of that thing. He said, you know what, I just lost my edge. I lost it inside. I didn't have it in here. Inside, things started to go crazy for him. He missed. 10 free throws in one game, a game they lost by maybe two points or something like that. He began to crumble under the weight of all of the pressure. Now, here's the thing. As much as that was a story and that's kind of a side little thing, it also is the truth that here's what I think is true, that we all, we all have a little bit of that in us. What I think is true, what happened to Simmons also happens to us, and that is this, that, that when an outcome hangs in the balance, we can lose our balance. When an outcome hangs in the balance, what's going to happen in this game, what's going to happen in this series, and there's pressure about what is going to come to be, we can lose our balance when we feel the weight from the outside and the pressure from the inside. Whether that's in a dating relationship and you were hoping that girl would say yes and now she has said no, and you're not sure what you're future balance will be. You're not sure what the future holds for you. You're not sure what hangs in the balance. You can get off balance internally and externally. If you're not sure what the future holds financially, what holds, what hangs in the balance of your future hopes and dreams, you can get out of balance pretty quickly. We have seen it in the past year and a half or two years for all of us. We've walked through this corporately, right? Even around our world. We weren't sure what would hang in the balance. And many of us have lost our balance in the middle of all the imbalance that we feel around us. We feel the weight of pressure from the outside and also uncertainty inside. When we get to the proverbial free throw line, it's our moment. Sometimes we get in our head and lose sight of our vision of what could be and should be because we get so badly in our own heads. Now, I don't know if you've experienced this, but this is what I think happened with Ben Simmons, and I think it happens with us on a regular basis. There's a lot at stake here, and here's what I want to say this morning, and then I want to take you to a story in the Old Testament to help kind of drive this home. What I think is when we lose our balance, there's a lot of bad things that happen, and one of the biggest bad things that happens is we begin to fight the wrong battles. We begin to fight with people, against people, against ideas, against future hopes and dreams, even against God in ways that don't actually produce healthy results in our relationships or certainly not in our relationship with God. And what I want to encourage us to this morning is this. I want to encourage us that joining God in the right battles actually steadies our imbalance. 
Joining God in the right battles steadies all of the imbalance that we can feel around us all of the time, the way to family, friends, our faith, future. When we join God in the battles that he is actually fighting, and he does fight battles, that is where I would argue that we find our balance. Now, to make that point, I want to take you to where we have been in this stronger series. It's the book of Nehemiah. In the Old Testament, which is the first kind of third of your Bible, you'll find this passage of Scripture, this Bible book called Nehemiah. I'd invite you to turn there if you have a Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible with you, not a problem. There's a Bible in the chairs around you. That's our gift to you. You can also open it up on your phone. If you open up to the middle of your Bible, you'll find the Psalms, and then I just encourage you to, to, uh, to go from there. You'll find back up a little bit from there, and then you'll find Nehemiah. But we are in Nehemiah, and today I'm going to be in chapter 4. We're going to go through the bulk of chapter 4, and I, I want you to see the story and the unfolding of Nehemiah, and along the way, parallel some of what Nehemiah went through with some of the things that I think we are going through here as well as we look to learn more about God and how he works in our world. So let me jump into chapter 4, beginning of verse 1. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry. Now, just for context, Sanballat is a, an enemy of the nation of Israel, and um, Nehemiah has come back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So Sanballat is, is leader of the opposition party, if you will. So he heard that we're rebuilding the wall, and he became angry, and he was greatly incensed. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? And then Tobiah the Ammonite, who I guess is his Robin to his Batman, who's at his side, said, hey, I, I don't know why. I kind of picture this in a small voice, like someone who wants to be bigger than he is, and he's looking up to his big mentor. What they are building, even a fox climbing on it would break down their wall of stones. He probably didn't say it like that, but I just imagine this guy is just like, I want to be your friend, Sam Ballin, and if you think that, then I'm going to say that too. And what we begin to see in this moment is you have to remember, in this moment in time, the nation of, of Israel and Jerusalem is, is scattered. They're broken apart. They've been um, in exile. They've been taken into exile. And now they're starting to come back and rebuild the wall. But what has been their reality for the past number of decades, at least 70 plus years, is that Sanballat and his army, they are in control. They have power. They have an army. And so when they start to mount their, um, you know, their arguments, when they start to get angry, and then he gets the army worked up, and then he says, what are those feeble Jews doing? By the way, that's a beautiful picture. When he says feeble Jews, it's actually used in the Old Testament to describe a withering plant. So this is what he thinks of them. Yeah, you're a plant that's just dying, right? And so the nation of Israel, they're beginning to feel this uh, like imbalance. They're beginning to feel the weight of pressure from the outside of like, can you actually do this? And the people who actually have real power who have the power to, to kill you, are starting to raise the ire of the army against you. And they begin to have this pressure from the outside coming in on them. What they're building, even a fox would break down. Now, I love the scriptures because of their honesty. Sometimes we can whitewash emotion away and just try to pretend sometimes in our Christian world that everything's going to be okay all right, God's going to work it all out. We can give you a Hallmark card with a nice verse on it and send you home, and everything's going to be great. This is not that section of Scripture. If you have ever felt 
like calling down the curses of God on your enemy, you're going to love the next couple of verses. Verse 4, Nehemiah begins praying. He says, hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. I want you to get into that moment for a minute. You see what Nehemiah is saying? He's saying, God, we're despised. I want you to take what they're saying and turn it back on them. I want you to, to give them over as plunder. Plunder usually doesn't survive the experience of being plundered. I want you to turn them over that they can be captive. God, I don't want you to forgive them. I want you not to cover up their guilt. Remember their shame. Don't blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Now, come on, let's be honest. Don't raise hands. Don't look at somebody or elbow them or anything. But isn't that refreshing? To a degree. Lest you think I have no heart and want the worst for everybody. Isn't there a part of our hearts when we have felt like such injustice has come our way, when people have been wishing the worst for us, when they've maligned your name, when they've said things that have been terrible, aren't there moments where you just want to say, you know what, yes, that's what I want. God, do you see what they're saying about me? Would you please not forgive them? Like, is it okay if I just ask you that the worst would happen to them, please? Like, haven't we all felt that moment, whether it's from a family or from an ex or a boss or an employer or a former coworker or a roommate or a teacher, where we just think, that person is terrible. <laughs> like, I, I can't imagine that God would forgive them. In fact, God, I don't even want you to forgive them. Now, we won't say that because it doesn't seem right. Right? but doesn't it capture the passion of your heart sometimes when you experience a deep injustice and pain? You don't want them to get away with it because you want justice. And Nehemiah just puts it in words. He's like, God, I'm going to ask you, don't forgive them. Hey, I don't mind if you take them captive. I don't mind if we never see them again. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing, really. Now, what do I do with that? I just want to say a couple of things about this real quick, because it's in the Scriptures. I cannot say that this is not what God would want Nehemiah to pray. I can't stand here and say Nehemiah is out of God's will here. This is a part of a genre or style of Scriptures that shows up in the Psalms. It's technically called imprecatory Psalms. I know you love that word, imprecatory. You can, you can use that word, don't imprecatory me. <laughs> It just means it's calling down a curse, basically, is what it is. And it shows up not just in Nehemiah, but it shows up in the Psalms with a routine schedule as well. The question becomes, is this something that we should pray, right, for our enemies? Before we go there, I just want to offer three conditions to think about quick. Number one, I want you to encourage, before we start raining down curses on our enemies, I want you to encourage you to remember our history. In the New Testament, in Colossians, we are told that that we are actually enemies of God. We were enemies of God before Christ came to redeem us. And so before I start 
in my own flesh just being so wicked angry at you that I'm going to call down curses on you. I need to stop for a minute and remember my history. Colossians, I'm reminded that I was first an enemy of God, and I'm grateful that God didn't just curse me through an eternity of damnation. Number two, is this business or personal? For Nehemiah, what he's doing is he's recognizing that God is fighting a battle, and in particular, in his world, it's a battle for what we call the Mosaic Covenant. It was a way that God agreed to work with the nation of Israel. And in this case, it's being violated. And so Nehemiah says, God, he recognizes, God, you are fighting for the people to return. These people are against that. In that they are against you, I'm going to give to you justice. I'm going to ask you to take care of what you want to be done. You are fighting this battle, God. I want you not to let them get away with being against you. It's not just against me. It's against God's will, particularly in the covenant, Mosaic covenant. So is it business or personal? And then thirdly is this, do we leave justice with God or deploy it ourselves? Do I leave justice with God or deploy it myself? Before I unleash curses on you and say I'm allowed to because the Bible says we can curse each other, am I going to leave, am I going to, when I pray in my anger toward people who are not doing the things I wish, when they're against what I think God might want, am I going to leave that there or am I going to work that out? you know, with you. So just a couple of things to think about. That's a little bit of an aside, but it's there. And I want to encourage you, if you struggle with honesty with some of your darker emotions, this is that space, one of those many spaces in the scriptures that opens up our heart a little bit. I want to encourage you to open your heart a little bit to this space. Yes, there are times you want justice and you are angry. When that is aligned with God, it can be a powerful thing. When it is misaligned with God, it can be a deadly and poisonous thing. So Nehemiah is aligned with the heart of God, and he prays this. And we, go, we read on, verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall until all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all of their heart. But when Sinbalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem's wall had gone on ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So I want you to know there's trouble. I'm going to say there's trouble from the outside, and in a minute we're going to look at trouble from the inside. This is simply trouble from the outside. People on the outside of your relationships, outside of your community, outside of your business, outside of whatever, people from the outside are putting pressure on Nehemiah and his associates. They're planning to attack. There's pressure from the outside, trouble from the outside. That results in trouble from the inside. Look at verses 10 to 12. Meanwhile, the people in Judah, who, by the way, are living behind a half-broken-down wall, who for the past 70 years have been living in fear of these people, they said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble, now they're saying, we cannot rebuild the wall. They're starting to give up. And also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Verse 12. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Over and over and over and over and over again. Just this constant drumbeat that this is going to be a problem. We need to give up. We have given up internally. The strength is giving up internally and externally. We have a perfect storm 
of pressure from the outside, pressure from the inside. They're in their own heads. They're giving, giving up faith. They're confused about what they should do. They feel the threat. They're not sure what's going on, and they are about ready to pack it in. Finally, I want to say this, and this may be important for you to hear. Some of you have experienced, some of you experienced pressure from the outside and pressure from the inside, and you have thought that that pressure means that I am not doing what God wants me to do. Because if I were doing what God wants me to do, then things would be easier. I wouldn't be looking at possible death right now. I wouldn't be looking at the loss of a relationship. I, things wouldn't have gone as badly if I were doing what God wanted me to do. And I just want to make the case from Nehemiah right here that there are times when you get extreme pressure from the outside and extreme confusion and difficulty inside your own head. And you are still doing what God would want you to do. That the pressure from both sides doesn't necessarily mean you're doing the wrong things. Nehemiah knows that, and that's why he does what he does next. Look at verse 13. He says, therefore, what he did in response, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families. That was a brilliant move. You'll see why in a minute. With their swords, spears, and bows. And after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. What I think he's doing right here is he's saying to the people, first of all, remember you're doing this for the Lord. This is the Lord's fight to bring back people from all who are scattered all over the world back to Jerusalem. This is God's fight. But in case you're in your head so much that you can't remember that, I want you to look around you because I've just put your wife and your kids behind you. Fight for them because they're right next to you. Brilliant move. And so verse 15, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. And verse 16, from that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor, and the officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. And then I said to the nobles, the officials, and all the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we're widely separated from each other along the wall. And we're going to end at verse 20. He said, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. And when he made that statement, what he did is he tied in this statement to the historical reality of the people of Israel. In the Exodus time period, which is the picture of redemption in the Old Testament, for people like us in a, we call ourselves in the church age, for people like us in this day and age, when Jesus died on the cross, it is the greatest picture of redemption that we will ever experience. In the Old Testament, in the time in which these people lived, their greatest picture of redemption was what we call the Exodus. When the nation of Israel left Egypt, were forced to flee, were in big trouble. And when they got to this sea, this Red Sea, they were stuck between the sea and the charging Egyptian army. And Moses said to the people, 
basically, we're going to go forward. And what God told Moses, he says, I'm going to fight for you. And Moses goes on to tell the people in Exodus 14, our God will fight for us. And so when Nehemiah says this, our God will fight for us, he's bringing back to the nation of Israel this reminder that God is a God of redemption. When you're facing impossible circumstances, and when you're fighting the fight that is in line with God's heart, our God, just like he did at the Red Sea, and just like he ends up doing in Jerusalem, and just like he did through Christ on the cross, ultimately, that we now see. Our God, he says, will fight for us. Now, I find that incredibly, incredibly compelling. I also find it incredibly challenging, because I ask the question, what does that mean? Because clearly, Nehemiah and his associates armed themselves, right? It's not as if they decided, forget the swords and the shields, we're going to just let God do the fighting and we'll do the building. No. They armed themselves. They prepared for battle. They prepared to defend their cities. I would look at them and I'd say, those are people who are ready to fight. But Nehemiah makes a claim that God will fight for us. And what does he mean? I think what he means by this is he's saying, when our fight, if you will, is aligned with God's fight, then God, this is his battle, not ours. We may participate in it, but ultimately, God is the one underneath my sword and shield. God is the one who is fighting this battle. Yes, he may use me, but underneath this, this is God's work. And so when I think about, oh, what does this mean? What does this look like? How does this work today? You and I are not under what we call the Mosaic Covenant anymore. I can no longer claim that God is going to bring back the scattered people around the world to Jerusalem. It's just not a part of what... The Mosaic, the Mosaic Covenant period is done. What Jesus has said is that a new covenant I give to you, a new command I give to you, and he cut this new covenant with his blood. And he said, this is, the, this is the fight, if you will, that I want you to fight. This is the mark of the new covenant. And this is what I look at now. When I ask the question, okay, if my job is to join God in the fights that he is in, what is the fight that God is in today? that I can align with. Because I don't get to say, God, all of my personal preferences you're going to fight for, right? You're going to fight for my way of thinking about the government, right? You're going to fight for my way of thinking about the church, right? You're going to fight for my way of thinking about relationships, right? Because I, were told, I was told that you fight for me. No, no, no. God fights for his causes. What are the causes that God is fighting for? The new covenant gives us the clearest picture of that. That Jesus says, a new command I give to you, love one another. It's as simple to me as that. That the biggest fight that I see that God is fighting today is the fight to engage our hearts with love and redemption. And if you lived any bit of life, you know that it is an absolute battle to love people, isn't it? It is an absolute fight to love, especially when you feel unjustly wronged, especially when you're angry that your family would go this way, and that your future hopes and dreams might be going up in smokes, especially when you feel like God has not been present through your hardest of times, and if only God would have, then this wouldn't have, and your health concerns are real. It is hard to fight the battle of love. And in those moments, I don't know about you, but I can often get a little bit angry. <laughs> and as I think about 
the, the misalignment sometimes of my expectations with God's, I often come back to a passage that I want to share with you because I want to press down, I want to press beyond philosophy today, okay? I want to bring it down to where the rubber meets the road if I can. When I think about what does it mean to join God in the fight that he has for today, I love what James, who's a brother of Jesus, had to say in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 21. And with this, I want to begin to wrap things up for this morning. James wrote this in James 1.19. He made this comment into James 1.20. He said this. I'm, I'm cutting right in the middle of a verse. He says, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, that's right in the middle. He's saying human anger doesn't produce the righteousness God desires. So when you feel that you've been unjustly wronged, when you feel that things aren't working for your benefit, that relationships have been lost, that family is in question, that finances are what they are, that church isn't the way it was, or maybe it is the way it was, that government and power and authority are here or there or wherever, and you feel a little bit angry, that things just aren't quite right for you. Human anger, James is saying, doesn't bring about the righteousness God desires. So what do I do with that? If I'm going to fight for love, what do I do? And here's where he begins this verse. He puts it this way, and he opens up this way. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger doesn't produce the righteousness God desires. And then he goes on. He says, therefore... Get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. James gives to me a battle plan to fight for what God wants me to fight for. When I think about how I spend my days and how I interact with you and maybe how you interact with me and how we interact with the people around us, James gives me an incredible clear picture. He mentions five things that I just want to highlight here real quick. First of all, it's this. Listen. He said... He says again, everyone should be quick to listen. I want to encourage you in five areas. If you want to fight, if you want to join God in the fight that he is fighting for, which I believe is the, the picture of love and redemption in our world, if you want to fight in that space, it's going to require that we listen deeply, that we listen to our enemies, that we listen to the people who would have thought the world should function differently than it is, that the church should go a direction that it's not that your family should have a future that it's currently not going, that relationships that were hurt, maybe we can listen and learn. And so I want to encourage you to listen deeply. It takes courage to do this, by the way, doesn't it? You know this. If you ever sat and listened to somebody, not talked to them, but listened to them, without objection, without hurry, but truly began to sit and ask the question, can you help me understand more? Tell me more. Where does that come from for you? Tell me more about your story. What do you think that would be like? And ask questions to listen deeply. It's the first part of the battle to love, I believe. Then he goes on. I'm going to take this one out. Speak carefully. He says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. In other words, declare things carefully. Be careful that you don't declare truth before you really have heard what's going on in the world and in the life of the person who you're trying to love next to you. Speak and declare carefully. Thirdly, he says this, he said, we should be slow to become angry. Be angry selectively. While there is argument to be made, as Nehemiah did in Nehemiah 4, verses 4 to 5, where he called down curses on his enemies, it's in the scriptures. I can't ignore that, neither should you. It's a very honest expression of his desires. 
But there's also more examples of people like Jesus, who when a prostitute was brought before him, and the religious leaders wanted them to, uh, you know, take care of her, he said, hey, let's, whoever's without sin here, go ahead and uh, you throw the first stone, and then we'll go from there. There's an example of Jesus over and over, showing these kind gestures to those who are most needy around him, ultimately, ultimately sacrificing himself on the cross for us. So be angry selectively, be angry selectively. And then he finishes with two other ideas, and it's this. I want to encourage you to confess routinely. James writes in here, he says, therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. To me, that's the language of confession. Where in my life, in my relationship with God, and my relationship with you, do I have the opportunity to confess to you, listen, I'm not loving this person well right here. I need to confess my impatience right here with you. I need to confess that I've been judgmental in my heart. I need to confess that I'm not willing to forgive and I'd rather hold on to, to judgment. I need to confess that I'm envious. I need to confess that I've gossiped. That this routine of confession cleanses the heart and gives us freedom to love for real. Finally, this, be humble always. He says, uh, you know, humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. This humility that James is talking about is the humility to come under the authority of the word of God. It's the humility to say, I have a great idea. I have a great idea about what I should do with my future. I mean, it may not be anything about what God wants, but man, I've got a great idea. And James says, let the authority of God and his word guide you first. Be humble always. Let the word of God grow within you. And so I don't know what fight you'd like to fight, but I know this is true, and I think it, you know it's true as well, that when an outcome hangs in the balance, we can lose our balance. When we feel the pressure and stress of our potential future, and we don't know what it will be like, we don't know where things will resolve, we can get imbalanced in here and also feel the pressure from out there. And I want to encourage you, according to Nehemiah, that joining God in the right battles steadies our imbalance. The right battle that I see that God calls people in our day and age to is this battle. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second command is like unto it. It's the same, he says. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in so doing, you will fulfill essentially the heart of the, your heavenly father that all the law and the prophets hang on these commands, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so, my friends, as you're dealing with any imbalance and stress and anxiety in your space and the life that you live, the life that I live, the battle that God is inviting us to, I believe, is to love well. And let me encourage you in this way. Listen deeply. Speak carefully. Be angry selectively. Confess routinely. And be humble always. Next week, I'm looking forward to having Pastor Kevin share with us a message that he has been working on for a little while, and it's going to be good. Will you pray with me? Father, thanks so much for the time together this morning, and I pray that you would give us the, the courage to fight the right battles, to be honest with the emotion that we have when things don't work the way that we wish they would, but then to remember what you've called us to. Not just this soft picture of love that can't handle the pressure and weight of life, but a picture of love that is most pictured 
with in many ways the horror of the cross. With Jesus' body bloodied and broken for us, that we could see and experience and ultimately be the beneficiaries of a redemptive love that goes to the death. And so I pray that you would help us to fight the right fights and that you would help us to prioritize the fight of love for our neighbors, love for our God. You'd help us to listen, to speak less, to be angry carefully, to confess routinely, and to be humble always. That we can find the balance again of what it means to be people who love you in this world, that others may see the good gift of a loving Heavenly Father to each one of us. Give us courage to love, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.